And we're in 2 Timothy, and we're building a church that serves. And then in the first three weeks of this series, we've seen three different things that might hold us back from wanting to serve. Fear, and shame, and hardship. What if I serve and things go wrong? What if I serve and I get it wrong? Uh, What if uh, life becomes difficult? And then in Paul's opening sentences, we heard him say, there can be no fear if Christ has died for you and Christ has risen for you. What else is there left of which to be afraid? There can be no shame if Christ has been shamed for you. He's taken it all. And there will be hardship, but in Christ you will never walk alone. And often in God's ark of redemption, what we discover is that the hardest times in our life are the times when we feel closest to God. That's how he works. So we've called this series Building a Church That Serves. That's not all that 2 Timothy is about, but it's a, a complex letter with a complex style, ideas woven around and appearing again. And a simple graphic, a simple byline is one way of us trying to understand a central aspect of the book. And you could think of weeks one, two, and three of this series as the demolition phase where Paul is is sort of clearing away objections to this idea that we could all serve and all minister in this place. Knocking down objections, bulldozing the ground, clearing the way, and now we can start to build. In uh, verse 15 he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker. That word worker in the original Greek means laborer. In verse 19, he talks about God's firm foundation, like that hymn. And then in verse 20, he describes the church as being like a great house. So you've got this construction image woven through the passage today. And as we begin to build the church, the question today is, what materials do we need to get onto site with which to construct this church? And the answer is words. You build a church with words. The quality of the words that we use and the way that we put the words together will determine if the thing we construct is any good. So let's look at words today, verse 14, and I do commend to you the the passage from 2 Timothy, page numbers in the bulletin as always, if that's easier for you. 2 Timothy um, chapter 2, verse 14. Charge them, he says, before God. Now, this is like saying, bring your congregation into the throne room and bring them with God right in their face as you say this thing so that they know that God means it. Not to quarrel about words. Warning us at first not to get bogged down in silly fights about trivial words. As an Anglican, I know hundreds of trivial words. Uh, this uh, thing that you're in is the nave, and this is the transept, and I'm here in the chancel of the church. Those are the proper names. You could just call that the back, you could call those the sides, and you could call this the front, and everyone would know exactly what you meant. The biblical term for the large wooden object behind me here is a table. The Book of Common Prayer calls it a holy table. We tend not to call it an altar in our church with at least a few caveats because altars 
are places where sacrifices are made, and we don't make a sacrifice there. We remember the sacrifice that Christ made once and for all on the cross, and we don't wish to undermine the significance of what he achieved. But if we're going to be a church that draws in the whole community, which we want to be, then we're going to bring in people from all sorts of backgrounds, and they're going to bring with them all sorts of words, maybe different words from the ones we would use. If you come from a Catholic background, you've probably called that thing an altar your entire life, and you're unlikely to change. Uh, If you've come from a charismatic background, you've probably called the entire thing that I'm standing on the altar. That's where you do an altar call and the Spirit descends. Uh, If uh, you ask me, I'm inclined to say there's not one altar in this church, there's 191, and those are our hearts. It's in our hearts that we render a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. It's in our hearts where we lay down ourselves, where we place our own rights before the Lord and we let go of things. And I think Paul would say to us, whatever, just (laughs) calm down. Take the chill pill, man. It's okay. I know what you mean. The pleasing tabular shape of that object leads me to describe it as a table, but if you want to call it something else, it doesn't really matter. Let's not have a punch-up on the building site before we've even laid one stone. Do not get bogged down in silly fights over trivial words. See how he says, still in verse 14, that a fight over trivial words does no good but only ruins the hearers. The word ruin in Greek, katastrophe, catastrophe, means to demolish. It demolishes things. A silly fight in the church about trivial words is to bring a wrecking ball into your construction phase. So there's one form of words that Paul warns us to be very careful about, and that is silly fights over trivial words. Next up, another, verse 16. Irreverent babble. Now, We don't really know what irreverent babble is, because whatever bilge they were saying was so rubbish that no one wrote it down. So we just have to guess. But uh, the scholar Robert Yarborough says that these can be folks who who maybe take personal bugbears, little tiny things that they fuss about, and then they exalt their preferences and exalt themselves, and they use their words like a weapon to get their own way. They escalate words uh, for control. Language is used as a weapon or a tool, and they're filling the air with their own words, not with the words of God, not with the gospel. Something like that. There's a third kind of wordy fight then in verse 23. So on to another one. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Now, these are easier to define. These are uneducated disputes. These are arguments in the church that are ungoverned by biblical knowledge and they're unregulated by biblical norms for Christian conflict resolution. This is uh, things like grumbling and slandering and complaining. And those are things that Paul places on vice lists over and over again in the New Testament, along with things like theft, immorality, and taking someone's life. The problem with this kind of fight, verse 23, is they breed quarrels. 
that get out of control. I was in a church where two people died in the same month, and the two families each gave a gift to the church in memorial. The, one family gave a small tree, another family gave a small bush, and the, the vestry of the church decided to, to place them in the same memorial flower bed at the same time. Neither family, it turns out, wanted to share that space with the other. They'd not particularly been fond of each other in this life, and I guess they figured that that would continue in the next. And so, uh, having put these things in the same flower bed, the family started to complain, and of course, obviously, the dispute got up to the vestry level. And when I joined the vestry, uh, this was in England, we call it a PCC, but it's the same thing, when, uh, let's not quarrel about words, when uh, I joined the vestry, I saw this thing on the agenda, and I said, oh, what's all this? It was literally the worst thing I could have said, as we spent the entire evening, for apparently the third year running, talking about this at vestry. And uh, this went on to paralyze pretty much all of the business of the church for nearly three years until one night a mystery character removed them both. And no one knew who it was. Uh, the vicar claimed it was the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit used an agent, and I strongly suspect the agent was the vicar himself, but he denies it to this day. Fancy, honestly, leaving a church or splitting a church over a shrubbery. Paul says in verse 16, disputes like this can escalate fast. They can get out of control very quickly indeed. And as they do, they tend to draw people in. They have a gravity of their own. They lead people, he says, verse 16, into more and more ungodliness. And in verse 17, he says, their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, this is a weird thing. <laughs> for us to, to say, I, sh I should think, right, this is a building metaphor. We've got the foundation, we've got the bulldozer, we've got the construction, the building, the words, all of it. So if it's a building metaphor and there's a problem with the building, why not use a, another building metaphor like rising damp or dry rot or black mold or something like that, anything that would affect a structure? Why gangrene? And uh, for the first part of this week, I thought, well, that's just Paul, right? You know, mix it up. Actually, I think he's telling us something, and that is the church is not a building. It is a body. It is alive, and a fight with words kills a church, which is very serious indeed. I called Dr. Becky this week, and I asked her all about gangrene. She's used to these calls, and uh, she said, well, it begins with an infection in the skin, possibly something small, not necessarily very serious at all. Uh, often something like a toe will get infected. And then, of course, if left undealt with, it can spread. And uh, it starts to eat and kill the flesh around it. Wet gangrene still has blood flowing through it. Dry gangrene uh, has now become so necrotic that there's no blood pumping through the body part. From there, the gangrene spreads from the flesh into the bones and from the toe into the whole foot until the only thing you can do is to amputate the dead part before the patient dies. And she said to me, quite often people will leave a problem like this until it's too late. In denial, she says, they kind of just hope it will go away. And uh, if they have a pet, this is weird, apparently it's quite common, uh, it relieves the symptoms to have the pet lick the infection. 
which makes it feel better for a moment, but it just makes it worse in the end. And maybe it's fear of dealing with the problem that makes people cover it up and ignore it and hope it goes away. It could be affection for the body part. I'd rather like my toe, and I don't want that doctor chopping it off. Thank you very much. And so they leave it. And the longer they leave it, the worse it gets, and then it spreads, and they end up losing a foot or a limb or even their entire life to something that could have been resolved really early on. The misuse of words spreads through a church as gangrene spreads through a body. It is a serious problem, and it leads to death. And Paul describes the death of a church in verse 18 as the swerving from the truth. It is not a church of Christ any longer when it no longer stands on the truth. If you build a church around yourself and you use your own words to fulfill your own desires, then you will die. And you will deviate from some core of what you believe. And it will no longer be the gospel that you proclaim. And the building will collapse. So you build a church with words, and I'm going to try and impose some degree of Western contemporary structure on this passage now, uh, which is a challenge. You build a church with words. The words we use and the way that we use them determine if the thing we construct is sound. There are some arguments about words that you just don't want to bother having. There's no point. It's silly. It's trivial. Forget about it. Whatever. And there are other arguments with words that look kind of trivial but are about to get out of control and will kill your church, and so you had jolly well better engage in those fights and deal with them now. This is a confusing thing, is it not? How do we know what kind of arguments to have and what kind of arguments to avoid? How do we know what to leave alone and how do we know what to engage with? Well, Paul offers in this passage, and you can see it hopefully in front of you, three pieces of advice about this. First of all, look at the dispute itself. And in saying this, Paul is drawing upon a well-established biblical principle here. In Proverbs 26.4, it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Never fight about words. Verse 5, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Always fight over words. And this is the, a kind of pair of things, don't do it, do do it, that causes a lot of non-believers to point at the Bible and say, see, I told you it was stupid, you can't believe it. Not at all. These two verses have deliberately been put together. If they were miles apart, I might listen to them. The fact they've been placed together shows me that we are trying to draw our attention to this unusual pair of ideas. My professor, Ernest Lucas, said these are deliberately placed together to inform us the advice is situational. The way you act depends upon the situation that you are in. He said, uh, in English idiom, we have exactly the same idea going on. Strike while the iron's hot. Only fools rush in. Well, which is it? Well, the answer is there are some deals that are too good to miss. Go for it. There are others that look a bit dodgy. Stand back and have a think. It's situational advice. Paul, I think, is drawing upon this ancient biblical tradition with his advice about words, saying, some are silly, some are serious, step back and assess the situation first before you act. 
Is this a case of gangrene in the toe? Or is it just a really ugly sock? Is it harming their health or just a fashion faux pas? Look at the fight itself. Second, look at yourself. Examine yourself. You cannot engage in any church dispute over words without first looking at yourself, bringing your heart before the Lord, and laying down your own rights before him and asking what he wants of you. Use that little altar to lay down the pride of your own heart before you engage. Flee, he says in verse 22, youthful passions. Uh, in the context, there are lots of youthful passions, are there not? But in the context, I suspect this is to do with words. If you have young kids, you'll know that they like to bicker over just about anything, right? You know, get a pack of gummy worms, the 17 gummy worms in that pack, you've got two kids, there's going to be a fight. The only thing is for dad to eat an odd number. <laughs> Uh, young adults can be quite feisty as well, not just uh, children, but young adults. In my early 20s, I went on a, a camping trip around Spain to visit many Napoleonic battlefields. Didn't have a girlfriend at the time, not sure why. And uh, we went to a swimming pool. And somehow that conversation in the swimming pool between me and my friends turned to the British taxation policies of the early 1970s. Uh, still no girlfriend. And uh, the, the argument became so heated right, that we lost ourselves in the fight until one of us came to our senses, looked around and realized we cleared the pool. There was no one else in there. And we were just surrounded by a throng of, of bemused and slightly irritated-looking Spaniards as these three pasty Brits shouted about politics and before they were even born. Calm down, <laughs> says Paul. Grow up a little bit. Do not fight in a spiritually babyish way. Look at the fight, first of all. Is it worth having? Then look at yourself. How am I going to engage in this dispute? And as you do, look at just how many words he lays upon you now. You're going to have the fight? Look at how much instruction there is devoted. Look how many words he devotes to instruction on how to do it in this passage. He says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Imagine a dispute governed by those principles alone. The Lord's servant, that is you, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Fight kind. And uh, if you find a fight about words that you cannot ignore, he says, be patient and gentle. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Your objective is to help. That's what you're there for. I asked Becky how she would treat a patient with gangrene. And she said, well, really gently. Because they're in pain. And if it's spread, they're probably ashamed. And they're suffering hardship as well. Well, that's weeks one, two, and three of our series, is it not? Pain and shame and suffering. That's all of us, isn't it? All of us were in pain, and all of us were ashamed, and all of us were suffering until we knew Jesus Christ. So be patient. You build a church with words. When disputes arise, you have to decide which things to ignore and which things to deal with. 
And then to do that, first of all, you look at the dispute itself. Is it worth it? Second, you look at yourself. How am I going to act? Hopefully with kindness and gentleness and grace and peace. And then third, he says, look at the word. We do not build a church with our words. We build a church on the word of God. Verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The only way to resolve any dispute in church about words is to sit under the word of God, to get out the Bible and to see what it says and to arrange your dispute according to the principles in here that govern the way we discuss things. And when both of you sit under the word of God, when you place the word between you, this works in marriages, this works in staff teams, it works in in the church, it works any kind of Christian relationship. When you place the word between you, everything changes. Because it's not a ding-dong between people whose pride is getting in the way. This is brothers and sisters in Christ seeking to see what the Lord would say to them together. Transforms every dispute I've ever been in. And, and God's word enables us to experience grace. And when the other person sees that you're not fully yourself, but you're full of the Spirit, and that you have received grace, and that you needed that grace, and that you are not sitting there as someone who's got everything right, but as as someone who has been forgiven and set free, that will transform that conversation so readily. And surely that's the thing we wish to communicate above all. So what if you're guilty of getting some of these things wrong? Right, what if uh, you've, you've had a few fights over trivial words? Or uh, you've had some profane talk that has got in the way and you've you kind of made some stuff up? Or what if you've been spreading controversy and slander around the church about a fellow believer without knowing all of the facts? You've jumped to conclusions. Uh, what if you've got bogged down in silly fights that do not matter? What if you've actually ignored some serious ones that do matter or you've engaged in them in a way that we're not called to engage. Well, last of all, I want to finish with this. Paul has a classic, what if I've messed it all up section. And Paul pretty much always has a what if I've messed it all up section because we messed it all up. You have. And so he says this in verse 20. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver. So the building image again, I guess. Not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. So you build a church. Like a large building, like this one, it contains many different vessels, many things, pots or containers of some kind, that are are actually superficially different, but fundamentally they're about the same, these vessels. Uh, So we have a, a golden bowl in the parlor, and I'm looking at it right now. And then right opposite, we have a a silver chalice on the holy table, and we'll look at that in a few moments' time. Two vessels that are more or less about the same, both quite dignified, both quite nice, both in elevated places where they can easily be seen. Of course, in the same building, we have a steel trash can over by the sink, and we have a plastic toilet brush holder over by the commode. Now, these items actually 
are fundamentally the same. They're all small containers that hold a little bit of liquid. That's what they are, all in one house. And some of these vessels have been set apart for the highest honor of all. And some of them are so disgusting that we've pretty much hidden them all away. And most of us won't see that at all uh, today, or, or maybe even for weeks. The phrase dishonorable use is, is a very earthly image of some kind. It literally means vile ignominy and disgrace. A garbage pail is uh, what most scholars think Paul has in view. I suspect that is only because a bit like a student house, they didn't have a toilet brush. I think he's gone for the grossest image he could have come up with, and we've gone one worse. The lowest of the low. The most revolting of things. But now he says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You can change. That's the good news. You can change. And maybe some days you feel a bit like the church trash can. That's where you think you are in the pecking order of this place. And then I stand up here and I call you to serve, and I describe you, and Ben describes you as a minister in holy orders with a job to do in the kingdom of God. And you think, what on earth could he mean? Asking me to come and serve in the church is as obscene as placing a toilet brush holder on the Lord's table and making us all look upon it. What a scandal. Perhaps you feel unfit to be seen. And you wonder what could possibly make it appropriate for you to be a holy vessel at the front. The answer is grace. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God takes what once was foul and hidden away and caked in shame. And he sanctifies our mouths and he sanctifies our hearts. He puts us to work then in the highest place of honor that we have. Sets us apart, sanctifies, cleans up, makes holy, and puts to a godly use. What is it, the use? What is the use of you? It is to point to him. That's the gospel. You didn't deserve it. That's the truth. That is what the lively word of God declares. The lively word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, our message of transformation and grace, transforms necrotic flesh into living tissue, into a living church. And it transports the foulest of vessels and places them in the place of honor by grace alone. That is the word that builds a church. That is the word that we declare.